0: Welcome to this session on brain research and behavior. My name is Al. I teach at Sioux Center Christian School, a small town in Northwest Iowa. I want to begin by mentioning the situation that launched my quest into knowing more, funny know more, no more of the brain. Two years ago, today actually, because it was a Thursday morning, last week of October, we were shocked to hear that one of our teachers was being removed. There was an allegation of sexual abuse, and the matter was under investigation. And as the details of that situation unraveled, and more and more students gathered the courage to uh, say that they too had been victimized, we mourned the school, and we asked how, how this happen, and why. Well, here are some of the things that we learned about the grooming process as we worked with law enforcement and counselors. Uh, one, we learned how perpetrators gain access to kids by building trust. Not just the trust of the kids, but the trust of the entire community. <laughs> we learned that they make the abuse seem fun, like a game, in our situation, and often they're groups setting. And finally, we learned that that, um, because perpetrators really want, really need to build that trust in order to gain access to kids, um, they work very hard at at, um, undermining the trust that kids place in other adults. And so even after this person was removed and and sent to prison, and and every physical trace of his presence was removed from our school, we realized that he was still in heads, Making them believe these lies about themselves we had to help these kids. We had to help ourselves helping these kids. So we it healing in many ways. And one of the things we did was to invite Dr. Dan Allender to come and give a seminar on, on sexual abuse. And, um, and uh, interestingly, um, Allender said the one book that everyone really ought to read, I've read a couple of his books, but the one book he said everyone really ought to read is this one by Bessel van der Kalk, um, The Body Keeps the Score. It's an excellent book on trauma. <coughs> Any kind of, thing, you or anyone you know is dealing with a trauma, I highly recommend it. It was in that book that I first got an interest then in more um, neuroscience, not just the psychology of behavior, like what we can tell based on observable behavior, the very structure, the physiology of the brain. And so I went on and read um, these books, The Invisible Classroom, uh, Brainstorm, the brain that, uh, I'm sorry, that's by Dr. Dan Will Siegel, The uh, Brain That Changes Itself, on neuroplasticity, and, and polyvagal theory, and others. But after doing all that reading, I put together this useful, this useful seminar. I thought, I, okay, I need to share something, what I've learned. What I was interesting, not just in trauma, but in, in behavior in general, and so uh, because the tra- this session isn't specifically about trauma trauma was my door into wanting to know more about the human brain uh, but I'm not an expert on trauma so I mean I really kn- I've really grown a lot to know about our particular situation but our situation as all of them is, is unique so first of all I want to say if you have a question about a trauma situation at your school I might not be able to give you a really solid answer but like I said, trauma is my door. Into this research, after about a year of reading, I thought, okay, I'm gonna, it's time to maybe share some of what I've learned. And I put together this, this seminar, of all of this stuff. I was gonna talk about um, tra- not only trauma, but um, attachment theory, <coughs> um, peer pressure, peer pressure, and how that works with the dopamine reward system. I was gonna talk about the attentional circuits of the brain and other stuff. Um, I did a couple of run-throughs at the Heartland Convention that's in Sioux Center, uh, where I live, and um, I think it was just too much. Uh, participants were overwhelmed. Uh, they indicated, I said, I, I want suggestions, I want to make this better. He said, well, we probably could have used a little more practical application, <coughs> a little more with uh, Fon, also on the biblical <coughs> perspective. So I went back and uh, trimmed, and while I was looking at all that I Put together, I asked myself, "Okay, what do I really, what did I really need to know um, after all that research? For one, what do I need to know about students and student behavior? But also, what do I need to, what did I need to know about myself? What was most valuable? And um, well, here are three things that I came up with. As far as my students are concerned, I want to know what causes them to behave the way they do, specifically in the area of being defensive, reactive." Some of my students, when I when I confront them, just react to me. They they deflect. They excuses. They they're really good at making their problem that they created seem like my problem. I want to know why they did that. that? um, I also want to know about um, why some of them are just so distractible. And then about myself, I want to know about about my level of anxiety and here. I'm making myself a little bit vulnerable because in the last two years that we've had these students in my classroom, now they've actually moved on beyond, beyond, beyond my grade level. Uh, but while they were in my classroom, I knew that some of their behavior was, was uh, started, spawned by the abuse they had gone through. And so their reactivity to me caused me to be reactive, so I've dealt with a lot of anxiety and when I get that feeling I I feel my I feel the heart muscle just pound and I know that my ears turn red because I can feel them hot <laughs> and my mouth goes dry and I and I can't push that down sometimes. I want to know I do that. And if there's any way to control that because um, when I'm in that when I'm in that mode it's really hard to guide. guide. So those three areas are. Where I'm trying to. I'm going to try to spend the time, but I don't want to talk all the time today. Um, I would love it if you have questions of your own or situations or or even input because I'm I'm still learning. I'm still learning, but I'm going to tell you some of what I know and then stop a couple of times along the way just to ask. You know, what, it, what do you think? How does this compare to your situation? <coughs> So I will share some stories, but of course I'm not going to, I need to protect identities, so the names will be changed. I'm going to start with a basic view of brain structure. So prefrontal cortex sits right up here behind the eyes. We use it for um, logic and <coughs> reasoning. The ability to plan ahead or also to look back and and, um, connect my actions with the consequences of those actions. Empathy, sensing the mental state of others, all of that is, or a lot of that is up here in the prefrontal cortex. The amygdala is the seat of our emotions, our emotions. The thalamus is sort of a hub for sensory input. It takes in input that comes through what we hear, what we touch, what we taste, what we look at, and so on, and cleanse that together into sort of a, a story, which it sends on to both the cortex and the amygdala. The hippocampus categorizes our memories, and the hypothalamus is what activates the body's defense mechanisms hmm. in times of stress. <laughs> so that's a lot to think about. Um, to make it easier to recall these things, these areas and what they do, I like to think of this trio as three friends at a social gathering. <laughs> so, Thao is the storyteller. She's constantly looking around, listening, sniffing, trying to figure out what's going on around me. And she feeds that information, like I said, in the form of a little story. And she feeds that to both Court and Mig. Now, Mig, short for amygdala, is the emotional one. Even as Thal relates her account, Mig is on her device, the hippocampus, checking if anything that Thal says relates to a sinister image on her device. And if anything that Thal, that Thal says, any of our sensory inputs, relates to a scary situation or a threatening situation in our past, um, it immediately lets... The hypothalamus thalamus no, and then our defense mechanism, the sympathetic nervous system, activates. Uh, we get ready to, you know, fight or or run away. <coughs> However, um Court is also there. She also gets the story. She does she is the voice of reason. She sits up right here on top where she can take in the larger context of the situation. And she does her best to keep the other two from jumping to conclusions. So, court is the part of the brain that says, well, maybe that person didn't smile at you because they're having a bad day, you know, that kind of thing. Um, Court helps us figure out, okay, why might somebody be be behaving like this? (laughs) So, what does all of this mean for, for classroom behavior? Well, the brain, according to the research, is wired for survival. You may remember Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of human needs from college, maybe. Yeah, so safety and biological needs first, and when those needs are met, we can focus on relationship needs. Well, the very physiology of the brain supports that theory. You will note that the thalamus, the storyteller, and the amygdala are close. And that arrangement is geared meant for our survival. Because in situations where physical threat is present, a swinging fist, falling tree branch, <coughs> we rely on a fast reaction time. And the messages simply take a few microseconds longer to go up through court, the prefrontal cortex and back down than they do to go straight through the amygdala. We also know that the amygdala is more active during adolescence, early teen years. Than any other time of life. And if you teach middle school or if you have middle school children in your family, you know what I'm talking about, right? I'm very quick, quick to react. It's more <coughs> active at that age than adults, obviously, but even more active that, at that age than, than it is in children, <coughs> small, younger children. So, what causes students to misbehave or to react to adults? Well, according to the brain research, um, something probably triggers the thalamus and the amygdala into presuming that a benign, a normal, neutral social cue is actually a threat. So um, Oscar, last year, was one of my students, and he, um, for whatever reason, um, he was involved in abuse or whatever, I'm not sure, but for whatever whatever reason, he, he could not... His body went into defensive mode when I was in proximity. So he could look at me, for instance, but he could not look at me and smile. I don't think he could do it. Wow. So I think what happened was that his, his brain, his emotional part of his brain, was triggered into thinking that I was a threat. And I think I know what it felt like. Because last year, um, one day, Oscar and one of his friends wrecked my math class totally ran off the rails. And what happened was I had, I had separated them in my seat because they, they were talking too much and, and they, just, they went off and they reacted. And disrupted class on purpose to make a statement and eventually I removed one of them to calm the other ones down and it was fine. But for a few minutes there um, I, I really felt like things were out of control. It was a really difficult experience for me. And that's hard for me to admit because when you've published a book On classroom discipline. (laughs) You know, a situation is out of control. That's like torture. That really feels like torture. So here's the thing. Uh, We actually worked through the situation. That was a Friday. Came back on Monday. Actually there was a snow day on Monday so we didn't come back until Tuesday. It seemed like forever. I fretted about it all weekend. But when we had school again, <coughs> head of school, the, their classroom teacher and I, we sat down and we worked through it. And here's the thing. Um, both of those guys, on their own, separately, we had separate meetings with both of them. and they both admitted that separating them was the right thing to do, that they were not good for each other. We, we totally worked it out. But ever after that, because that situation was so traumatic for me, when Oscar had that look on his face, the same look he had the day that he wrecked my class, I felt like he was doing it again. My amygdala was saying, he's doing it, he's doing it again, he's going to wreck your class. I could feel all that anxiety that I had talked about. And sometimes I had to take a step back, sometimes I'll literally take a step back, breathe, look at the class, remind myself, no, this is Oscar having a bad day. Not everybody. You can deal with a student. And reactivity, based on safety. And one other thing that's interesting to note is the amygdala, when it pulls up a memory, um, that's, those memories are different from the explicit memories. Like, if you try to think about a fact that you maybe heard this morning in another session, you know that memory was in there. That when the amygdala calls up a memory based on an emotional experience, and there's emotional fragments embedded into those memories, the amygdala lives that memory as if it's happening now. It doesn't know the difference. And so when Oscar got that look on his face and that came back, my body reacted in the same way that it did that day. And it takes a lot lot to get on top of that. Over time, what did we do um, with Oscar? We decided to set up weekly meetings for a while. Um, not punishment meetings, we just pulled them out of class, not recess, a class like technology when I happened to be free. And we'd talk for five minutes. and just talk, uh, Celebrate the things that have gone well in the past week and the things that maybe we needed to improve on. Um, we did that to try to build something that researchers call the disconfirming experience, uh, because, excuse me just a second, Um, yeah, all right, so uh, when a person's been traumatized or when they feel threatened, (coughs) the nerve fibers start to associate people or situations with that (coughs) threat, and so every time, if Oscar and I were only together in situations where we felt tense around each other, that just, that just strengthens those fibers that make us feel like threats to each other. Um, those weekly meetings were a way to disconfirm and actually wire. Um, research shows that the fibers of the brain physically rewire over time. It takes a long time, and it never totally, uh, never totally healed. Um, um, but when we have those talks, at least the, the animosity uh, from that. That feeling of struggle behind us would kind of shift. Um, also, tried hard to use the love and logic approach. Um, I'm, uh, we're, we're working on love and logic now as a school. And I don't totally subscribe. There's some places where the thought system breaks down. That with brain research and what happens to the brain when a person feels threat, right on. Um, so when we can show, if we can show empathy in the face of defiance, as they prescribe, instead of reacting, empathy activates a different part of the brain. Activates the prefrontal cortex, which helps us to connect our actions with the consequences of those actions. And if we react, we activate this part of the brain, which causes kids to fight us or to try to, try to escape. Yes, go ahead. Empathy empathy in the face of what? Uh, of resistance. So what Love and Logic does um, is so if a, a student is creating a problem, you would you have things that you say and well, really I'm oh, I'm really sorry that happened. And you would say it's gonna happen as a result. <coughs> I'm so tempted to react when someone is <coughs> disrupting, I want to react. No, I asked him. I would even ask him sometimes, do you? you know, just try to, you know, just put it out there. You know. He was almost surprised that I thought that way. I'm so glad now that during the summer, I he changed, um, and now we actually have I've reached that day. And you we know, and whatnot. I think part of it was, uh, now looking back, he's in a different group of kids. Um, no. Well, if he thought he did, he would ask me to come and sort I'm not very interested. You don't think you're interested. You're getting help right now, but you actually don't need it. There are a lot of kids that need help. Right but, um, there was something in his mind that, that told him you're not a good person. Yeah, thank you for the questions. So I was mentioning love and logic, and with that system, you try really hard to show empathy or to stay calm, and sometimes it works, but sometimes it didn't. I couldn't I couldn't <coughs> push that anxiety down, and I, I reacted. And that's where Stephen Porges has been helpful. Uh, Porges says that, uh, actually, Okay, Stephen Porges, I should explain, is the the originator of the polyvagal theory. He spent more than 30 years studying the vagus nerve, which is the largest nerve of the parasympathetic nervous system. And uh, Porges says that sometimes we can cognitively understand a situation. We can cognitively, in the cortex, know why the student is behaving the way they are. And we cognitively know that we should stay calm in order to to get it back on track. But the body sometimes hijacks the mind. The body hijacks the mind. And here's why. So I tried, tried to draw a picture of two people. They look more like robots. <laughs> They're people. They could be any two people on Earth, because we all tend to, re- our nervous systems react the same way because of this nerve, the vagus nerve. Um, and so I'm just going to say me and you to make it to make it easy for me to talk about two people. When there's an interaction happening, um, Your what your mental state, what I'm gathering from the way you feel about me, how calm you are, or nervous or anxious, or happy you are around me, that stuff comes into my sensory, um, stuff in my face, like my eyes and my ears and so on, and it immediately goes to this area where it registers with my inner organs, like the hollow organs of the peripheral nervous system, the lungs, the heart, and the stomach. And those <coughs> organs actually adjust them to that impression that I'm getting of you. And they send a message back up to the brainstem, which um, connects them with the nerves that innervate the like the ears and the, the face and the eyes and even the voice box and those things adjust um, so basically as Porges says we wear our heart on our face our faces show what our heart is doing quite simply and those messages are relayed very very quickly because the, the vagus nerve runs independent <coughs> of the spinal cord it's a whole different, uh, different nerve the, uh, the messages travel in microseconds and because those, those um, messages are conveyed so quickly, he talks about neuroception. Um, with, with perception, there's an idea that, that you know, when the, the perception I have of someone, there's some thought that goes into that. Well, you act this way, so you must be that kind of person. Well, with neuroception, the nervous system actually runs the show. So as human beings, we're astoundingly aware of, Slight emotional shifts in the people and animals around us. Again, because of that vagus nerve and that stuff going on back and forth. So the scanning that we do, we don't even know that we're doing this, that it occurs below consciousness. Like I said, the nervous system runs the show. So according to the polyvagal theory, then we have these three modes that we operate in. <laughs> have really long names, so I made them a little shorter. These are actually his names too. but if you're familiar with high school biology, you might recognize the, the sympathetic nervous system, the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. Autonomic means we don't really control it. It just it does its own thing. Sympathetic is um, the emotional. It's what activates when we feel threatened there's but then um, there's also the parasympathetic nervous system which is without emotion that's the system that calms us and traditionally we see these two systems as as sort of balancing each other one gets us fired up the other one helps us relax but Porges says that that paradigm is somewhat incomplete because we also seem to have this other system where um, where if we feel life threat, or if there's a threat and we don't think we can escape, we go into shutdown <laughs> or collapse. So I'm going to talk about each of these just a bit. The ventral vagal parasympathetic, which would be the social engagement system. That's where we are when we feel safe uh, with the people who are around us. So uh, if I'm with my family we're having a meal together and we're laughing and crying or... When I'm with my students in my classroom, the lesson is really clicking and we're all engaged. We're in in that that social engagement system. And that's the system our bodies prefer, that's what they want to be in. When we're in that system, faces uh, loosen, bellies loosen, our thinking is more flexible, we're more curious, we think more creatively. Literally, the muscles that control the eye help us to focus better. We can read facial expressions. The inner muscle, ear muscles, the middle ear muscles, which are connected by nerves to the eye muscles, help us to extract voice from the background. All of that stuff is active when we're feeling safe, when we're in the social engagement. But if something in the other person, if our neuroception detects threats, then we start to venture into this system, the sympathetic, the fight, fight or flee. And we're not really in control of this, but it overrides the ventral bagel. It overrides the social engagement system. And the thing is, we don't even really know what we're doing this, Porges says. And I'm like, well, yeah, right. But, um, then I hear then I, my wife say, Al, you're talking too loud. So when I'm arguing with my kids, why are you so loud? Now? Oh. So that's my. When <coughs> we get into this, we don't, when our bodies are doing this, we don't <coughs> realize it. But in this system, um, which overrides the social engagement system, um, thinking becomes more rigid. Our voices um, are either become more high pitched or low and growly. Uh, bellies tighten. Um, the ears don't pick out voice as well from the background. It's harder for us to focus. We don't actually don't read facial cues very well when we're in this system. And finally, the shutdown or collapse system. Thankfully, I haven't experienced this too often. I can remember two three times in my life. One time when I actually was so scared, I passed out. I was a kid. Something really scary happened. Um, I lost a sister in a car accident. And when that call came through in the middle of the night, that she had been in a car accident, and um, I, I almost fainted. And then uh, 9 911 or 911 2001 was another time when I experienced almost uh, not going in totally, but just almost <laughs> my um, body. So how do we keep ourselves in the social engagement system, and how do we keep our students there? Well. Um, The, this nerve that I was talking about um, okay, the vagus nerve uh, we get feedback from our lungs and that, that tells our brain what's going on and then our faces and our voice boxes and all that react accordingly Porges says that that vagus nerve the fibers are actually bidirectional so they send and receive feedback now his reading is very, it's very complex and you almost need to be a doctor Oh, I might misunderstand it, but the way it sounds is this. We can actually turn this loop around. So if we for- force our faces and our eyes and our voices to do what they do when we're calm, that's a way to calm these organs, and it's a way to calm the other person. So he talks about one of the most powerful things you can do to offer yourself safety when you're feeling tense, is to focus on things like your breathing. Our heart rate is actually never the same, totally the same, the, the time between each beat. So when we are inhaling, we're activating the sympathetic nervous system, the emotional system. Our heart beats a little faster, and that allows blood or oxygen to get it to ourselves. When we exhale, we actually activate the relaxing system. So if you can focus more on the exhaling, that's a way to calm yourself down. He also talks about um, speaking expressively because it's nearly impossible to to talk expressively and to breathe quickly at the same time, right? So if you can talk with expression, that communicates to your inner organs that you feel safe, and it helps the other person in that direction too. He said he talks about um, the urge we have when our kids make us mad. We think we need to sit them down and lecture to them, right? Because talking is actually a yoga activity. We do that to calm ourselves down because it forces us to exhale slowly. And then we get frustrated because our kids won't sit still and listen. Well, maybe that's because we're not allowing them that chance to calm themselves down by talking. What if you can't do any of that stuff? What if you can't relax your face? What if you can't calm yourself down by talking expressively? He talks about um, the power of music. Music actually, especially singing music, mimics expressive speaking. So, listening to melodies, um, literally, scientifically, helps us to feel and look better. Perfect scenario, last year I had a student-teacher and you know how kids have access to these technologies He so you this box and he would, he would set the box out and then he would put something into his phone and the box would play music it was <laughs> amazing. It had such a calming effect on the students and I, So last year I got myself a box. And I'm still trying to figure out how to make it work. Maybe I should ask a kid, right? But anyway, listening to music also has a, has a calming effect. So, yes, go ahead. What if the speaking expressively, calmly, just drives the other person crazy? Speaking, okay, so the person maybe doesn't feel safe around you, you mean? You're, the question was, what if speaking expressively drives the person crazy? I just realized that I do this. <laughs> 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 myself, right? You do what? Oh, you I, talk I expressively? speaking expressively, calmly, to calm myself down. Yeah, right? yeah, sure. And that makes him like, angrier. <laughs> I'm not a therapist. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's interesting because my wife, uh, she, you know, I do active listening because I have this training in college. Active that makes sure. <laughs> it's exactly the thing that I need people to do with me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I guess you, you know, God created us all differently, and we got to figure each other out. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, question. This is actually a spot where I was going to stop and ask questions or, you know, discussions, so feel free if you have <coughs> anything else you would like to, to ask, because, like I said, I could talk the whole time, but I don't think that would. Outside or Christian? Outside okay. a Christian school. So thinking of a predator in a Christian school setting, with maybe the default mindset of those things don't happen in this community. So I would assume the trauma was far outside of just the students, right? Like culture, like in, in our context, we have to accept that this has happened. Um, did you guys, as a school, like offer community support? Yeah, yeah, yeah. everything in every possible way. And one of the things that, that happens when someone you know, gets convicted of abuse is they pay money into a, into a fund that, that provides counseling for victims. And you know, that was made available. We had sessions at school. Uh, like I said, everything we possibly could do. And it went, it went very well. You know, if you, quite often in a situation like that, you'll have people pulling out of the school, believing that uh, we continue to grow in school. Not to say that there's not issues. That there's still a lot of pain but we're working through it. Was there pushback, though, from people like, no, those things don't happen in these communities, like a Oh, yeah, know. yeah. At first, for our administrator, he took a lot of heat that first weekend because this was one phone call, and, you know, when an accusation comes out like that, you know, it, if it was untrue, you know, if it's unfounded, the person doesn't, you know, you don't, that stays with you. The accusation. <laughs> you know. There were people who called him and asked, you know, aren't you, aren't you reacting? And... That was a long, long weekend for him. But then as more and more students then yeah. gathered the courage to come uh, out and say you were victimized to it was pretty obvious. So, mm-hmm. so, yeah, but he did the right thing, despite all the pressure. Yeah. What age group was this? Um, this person was a fifth grade teacher, so it started in fifth grade and then continued uh, to gain access to kids. He, um, he, he was a wonderful coach, um, and you know was involved in any of the roles involved with kids and it's just so strange you think of perpetrators being creepy people that you know, in a situation like many are people with kids and, and kids love them. they just love him. We have we have there are teachers that I worked with who became teachers because because he was so inspired to them, so. yes go ahead. I just a connection <laughs> when I was in fourth grade I remember my teacher reading us a story, and the character in the story was afraid and he sang, uh-huh. and she said, that's actually a very good thing to do when you're afraid, you should sing. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I remember teaching my kids that too, asking my daughter to go in the basement and get something, she was afraid. I said, you should <coughs> sing if you're afraid, yeah. and she sang, when I am afraid, I was singing that song I yeah. One of my earliest childhood memories is my mom. I had the flu, and she had me on a rug in front of the, the heat register on our old house. And, and I was so scared because I did not know what was happening with me, why my body was doing all of that stuff. And then she that's the night she taught me, Jesus loves me. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, very my early memories. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, so you talked about... Kind of how when, when our in the facial expression and body language of another person when it when we perceive a threat that that's uh, an autonomic reaction. Yeah. We react to it automatically. So are the techniques basically a way to deal with that after it happens? Are there techniques to prevent that from happening in the first place, or is it it's just the way we're wired and it can't be stopped? Yeah, it's, we have to deal with it. the way I understand it. It's the way we're wired to react. Like right now but then when the cortex can come up, can, you know, catch up, I have to think as a professional. Now, I'm a teacher. I have to be a professional. I have to maintain control of myself. So, yes. Now, it's interesting. Scientific research is reluctant to talk about right versus wrong in a moral sense. Um, You you hear about pro-social behavior and anti-social behavior, Adaptive and maladaptive, because you know if the nervous system really determines how we act. Well, then we really can't help it when we make choices. But I, you know, I don't. Some of that is true, but I don't buy you know everything that we do. And that's that's where I was going to go next. Um, actually, yes. Sorry, you might be just getting to this. But yeah. The question is how do we how to keep our students in the social engagement? system is there things that we can do? with our body language, our voice, that help? mm mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, how do we keep them there, right? So the Porges and others say is, you know, if we can keep ourselves in social engagement, there's no guarantee. Um, like, you know, the, the theme of this conference established the work of our hands. We plant seeds. We try to make it go in a certain direction, but it's, what happens is it's up to God. That if we can keep ourselves feeling safe and in control, then we increase the likelihood that our students will if they can't, if they can't, the last two years with this new situation, our head of school was very gracious, and she set up a place in her office where we could send them, not as a punishment. Um, it wasn't a place to go to be disciplined. It wasn't even a place to go to, to have counseling per se. It was just a place for them to continue their classroom learning away from the others so that I could stay calm and the other students could focus once again on their learning. That took some upfront work. I had to have my, their work ready for the day in case we had to go that route. Because I didn't want to send them there and just let them have vacation from class. That's not acceptable. But if learning in the class is not working, <coughs> the preferred way that it's not working, then you got to continue on learning. Yeah. Now, what would you suggest in a situation, uh, so like in student services, I get called in when students are already in? these different systems? <coughs> do you have suggestions on de-escalation or how to shutdowns are one of the hardest to try to? Right, right. Yeah, and I, I know what I do, but it's probably not a, as good of an answer as what a counselor could give you because I don't really have training per se in that area. So sorry. Yeah, but yeah, those are very real situations and in our world. Um, we're hearing that Students more and more are dealing, coming up to us with anxiety issues. We have to be prepared, don't we? Um, I'm probably going to skip this area for now because I want to get into um, the biblical perspective on human behavior. Just to summarize the research that I've done on neuroscience, I like to think about three questions What is the nature of behavior? What drives wrongdoing? And how can we d- redirect wrongly? And when I summarize it, here's here's what I get. This is where the research seems to be. We're looking at just the brain from the scientific view. The nervous system is wired for survival. All of us feel, all of us follow this inborn drive to survive. That's just the way our bodies are put together. So what drives wrongdoing? Well. Again, science is reluctant to, to call it right or wrong, but they would say antisocial behaviors emerge when the nervous system detects threats. That's where we get this reactivity that I was talking about at the beginning. Defensiveness, deflecting, making their problem my problem. How can we redirect wrongdoing? Well, we've got to offer an environment that's safe, because if students don't feel safe with us, they're never going to get up here And the cortical part of the logical part of the brain stimulating goes back to what i was going to talk about about the the attentional circuits of the brain that our brains we can't focus on everything so our brains focus on what's most permanent pertinent to our survival so the answer is really we've got to provide a learning environment that's safe and stimulating we got to activate the brain so how about the biblical narrative um, When I think about human behavior, and I know that I'm oversimplifying because I'm trying to squeeze the whole Bible into just humans here, but I think we can all agree that people were created to love. So science says that people were created, or not necessarily created, but people um, are put together in a way that helps us to survive. It's all about survival. In the Bible, we were created to love. And ironically, those two seem like opposites, don't they? Because if we love others in the way that God commands us to love—love <coughs> love God above all, love your neighbor as yourself, agape love, love unconditionally, love even the people who hurt you, pray for your enemies, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you—that really runs counter to our drive to survive. There's an irony that I found. I was thinking through this. <coughs> what drives wrongdoing? Well, sin takes that love <coughs> that God created us to have going out and turns it around so that we love only ourselves. That's basically the heart of, of all misbehavior. So when my students are acting out in class, yeah, some of it might be, or they may react in defensiveness to me. Some of it might be a feeling of threat that mixed in, I think, Is some personal choice, or at least a desire to maybe improve or protect their status in the eyes of their friends. I got to be honest with myself too, because sometimes when I feel tense and anxious about my about what my students are doing and situations that feel out of control, if I'm completely honest, and in times where I reacted, maybe my ego was mixed in. Maybe mixed in with my reaction was not just that feeling of threats, but wanting to think about my image, think about my image as a teacher. What do people think of me? What do my co-workers think of me as a teacher? That stuff gets mixed in and that's also why I react sometimes the way that we do. So how do we redirect from you? Well here's another irony. Um, but before I go there, I want to show a great example from Scripture, Psalm 51. This is the psalm that David wrote after, um, after he was confronted about his affair with Bathsheba. And it's, it's beautiful, be- beautiful words of repentance here. This is what I go to. This is my go-to song when I really <coughs> messed something up. This is, these are the words that I pray. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. How did David get to that point? Well, here it's actually How did he get to that point? And here's the second irony. Even though we were created to love, which seems to run counter to what science says, we were created, we were made to survive. Another irony here is that to, keep, to help kids own their mistakes, we still really need what science is telling us. We have to help kids feel safe. Because if my students feel threatened by me, um, they're not going to feel safe. They're not going to own their mistakes. Uh, Unlike King David, they're going to try to make it my problem. So two things, accountability and grace. We have to hold kids accountable. Showing grace is not leaving them stuck where they are. Sometimes we think about grace in terms of letting students go free. Well, sometimes we don't give students what they have done. But grace is really about moving them out of where they were. Grace is not leaving them where you have to hold them accountable. And sometimes the grace is in the way that to responds about in, in, in this behavior. It's confronting them in ways that assure that they are safe with us. I just want to bring one example um, to mind. Um, trying to think about something recent that happened in my classroom. Okay, I, I set up, I, I spent a lot of time setting up the science activity. I was really proud of it because I stayed like two hours after school to make this thing work. And in the middle of it, this clown in one of my classes. He just totally messed the whole thing up. He was running around, and clowning around, and the kids were laughing at him. And nobody really noticed this really cool thing I had made for them to experience. And so on the way back to our class, um, I just talked the others were in. And usually he gets defensive and deflects back at me. he actually turned on what he said. I'm sorry. And of course, I forgave him. That's all that I had to say. Thank you for coming.